Welcome to this CityWire podcast hosted by me, Will Robbins, editor of New Model Advisor magazine. As we find ourselves in the midst of a global health emergency, it seems apt to take an in-depth look at the systems and businesses that provide healthcare. While on a public service level, health systems are being stretched to breaking point or even beyond, businesses in the healthcare sector may stand to benefit, as, as might those who invest in them. Meanwhile, markets are daily bobbing up and down with each murmur of a drug breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19. Hopes of a breakthrough drug drove pharmaceutical company Gilead's stock high, lifting sentiment across the board before those hopes were dashed just days later when it emerged a clinical trial of remdesivir had not improved patients' conditions. It's is it all pie in the sky? Joining me to debate the issue, I've invited two quite different but extremely well-informed guests. One is P Paul Jordan, manager of the Amati Small Companies Fund. Uh, he has one of, and a person who has one of the most consistently strong performance track records in Citywire's analysis. Uh, Paul is also uh, a concert violinist to boot and has once performed for us uh, on the Citywire podcasts. The other is uh, Mark Stevenson. Mark Stevenson is a writer, businessman, public speaker and reluctant futurologist and has spoken at several CityWire events in the past. Uh, we've spoken, I've spoken to Mark a couple of times recently uh, and although he says he's under quote crushing non-disclosure agreements, uh, he's had recent, the recent discussions he's had have include places like the Ministry of Defence, uh, Bedsan Sans Frontières and I imagine he will mention more. So let's get started and I want to start with you Paul talking about the healthcare sector how, tell me, how has it performed in the crisis? What are the companies and trends that are driving this? Um, perhaps you could give us some examples. Yeah, great. Hi, Will. Very nice to meet you, to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been quite remarkable what's happened to the healthcare sector in, in the last few months, and in many ways not surprising. And this is a sector which I would say the UK is astonishingly good at delivering really good science into we have pretty much every university town in the country has really significant medical work going on in it. And from that has sprung a whole range of businesses. And I'm, I'm a, I deal in small and mid-sized companies, so those are the ones that are always on my mind. Um, and uh, the UK has been consistently very interesting in this sector, but it's also been one of investment uh, difficulties, a lot of failures uh, over the last 20 years since I've been managing small company funds. I'd say this has probably been one of the hardest sectors to invest in and okay. it's endlessly fascinating uh, but difficult and, and the, I suppose the reason it's been difficult broadly is that the failure rate of new drug developments has been very high and mm. uh, so actually if you take preclinical drugs, <clears throat> I was looking at uh, a paper on this this morning actually, if you, if you take preclinical drugs between 2000 and 2015, the success rate to approve products was around three and a half percent something like that so overall very very low mm. um so it's not surprising that it's been difficult um but I, interestingly since 2015 that that success rate has picked up a lot and there are reasons for that which we may come back to and yeah. so in, in in many ways the the there's been a healthcare has been on something of a global uptrend over the last few years and what's happened with COVID-19, of course, is that every healthcare company has responded by saying, well, what can we do for this? Mm. And it turns out that there's something that most of them can do for this. 
and they've been recognizing that and bringing it forwards and and doing it and of course when investors see companies able to deploy their skills for something as massive as covid19 has become uh they respond accordingly and there's a, there's a lot of enthusiasm for investing in companies that are, are able to play some valuable role in in treating covid19 yeah. in one way or another well we're going to we're obviously going to talk about uh covid very soon I'm interested in this period uh, just bef- you know, before the, the crisis. It wasn't that long ago that we, we had no idea uh, about any of these things uh, in the public. Um, and I suppose it's sort of ask, asking a similar question to you, Mark, but as, as the industry as a whole, pre-COVID, what would your assessment of the healthcare industry have been? Um, I would have classed it as an absolute disaster um because it's not uh, so that's not to say that the individual companies that are producing uh medical products or whatever and some of the ones that produce drugs aren't great companies but if you look at the healthcare sector as a whole it's not healthcare it's sick care so there is a disconnect between what society needs which is healthy societies and what the healthcare sector provides which is fixing stuff that's that's gone wrong so for instance if you look at covid for instance um if you want to be susceptible to a re- respiratory disease uh, be overweight, uh, you know, uh, smoke, don't do much exercise, um, have an unhealthy diet, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's what you've got. If you wanted to be really robust against sort of a, a pandemic like this, which, you know, epidemiologists have been saying is coming, you know, all for years, and we knew it was coming at some point, uh, don't have, a, don't have a, a populace, particularly as we do in Western democracies, that's increasingly obese, unhealthy, and whatever. So, so what happens is that companies make a profit out of fixing problems that shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's a bit like drugs for obesity, you know, massive profits in drugs for obesity, but 97% of the case, uh, uh, 90% of the um, cases of obesity can be cured very simply by not eating so much, having a, a diverse diet that keeps your microbiome uh, healthy and, uh, and, uh, and, and doing a bit of exercise. You don't need drugs. So it's, so it's yeah. the wrong answer basically yeah. to the wrong uh, question. Well, I wonder, I mean, is, there is certainly obviously another element here of how much, I suppose, you know, what, what, how much is fair to put at the, the door of the healthcare sector? I mean, you know, you obviously mentioned issues like obesity, uh, but, you know, you could see the other way around that, you know, our, is our healthcare, is healthcare and the businesses in that and the policy around that unnecessarily narrow or, or should be less narrow than they are? Um, well, I mean, so, well, I'll, I'll, you answer that and then I'll talk, tell to Paul because Paul's sort of been sh- nodding, but with an expression that he maybe disagrees with some of what you're saying. Well, of course. And that's, <laughs> otherwise, this podcast would be incredibly boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, what's happened with COVID-19, actually, which is, is great for people like me and the work I do, is that everybody in the world has just been given a, a very uh, st- uh, quick and sharp lesson in systems change. And, and, the, and the interconnectedness of systems and how they all work. And so, yes, uh, everybody, and I find this in my work all the time, lots of people doing good things, like teachers doing good things, but the education system itself is problematic. Civil service and the Department of Education doing good stuff, but there's, there's no systems thinking across these stuff. So everyone defends their position by saying, well, why get at me? I'm doing a good thing. But there doesn't appear to be this ability to look across the whole system they're working with, and then the interplay of all those different systems. This is essentially what, you know, government should do. It's what good investors should be doing as well. And so I think right now we have to, uh, because the species is in such a crisis, and it's not just COVID, it's retreat of democracy, it's soil erosion, it's climate change, it's mass inequality, you know, um, we need to think much more systemically. 
And so um, uh, when you know, everybody can go, it's not my fault, and everybody's right. But that doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just keen to stay in this pre-COVID world for a little bit, uh, apart from my own sort of fantasy. Um, but, uh, but, but Paul, it would be good to, for you to perhaps respond to a couple of those points. Description of it, healthcare sector, uh, the, the, as a sick care sector, uh, but also um, some of that, those points there about interconnectedness as well. Uh, and anything else you else you might want to come? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think on the point about interconnectedness, I mean, it, it made me think of one of my uh, sort of long-held beliefs that what one of the substantial problems we have as as our economies mature is over complexity, and the world is so complicated that actually none of us can do anything other than scratch the surface, and when we're trying to understand it. Uh, and, and those of us who have expertise in a little field maybe get to know, you know, one or two percent of what we need to know to understand that field if we're doing really, really well. Mm. Uh, but and, and we tend to think that the way to solve problems is to make the world even more complex. So in all of the solutions that we've come up to problems over the last 20 years that I've been following have involved significantly increasing regulations, significantly increasing the complexity of what you're dealing with if you want to if you want to operate in that area. And, you know, try starting a business these days and you'll very quickly come up against massive complexity in almost every area that you try and achieve something in. Um, so in some ways, I, I think this interconnectedness, the, the reason why it always surprises us is because the world is so just so complicated. Um, and it's, it's one of the issues we have as fund managers when we're trying to make modest predictions about uh, cause and effect. Uh, for something happens over here, what's it likely to influence? That's, we can only hazard educated guesses i mean the, the the actual complexity of the systems we're in is 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 vast so that's just a sort of general point yeah yeah i think on the point about sick care system versus healthcare system i mean the humans by definition tend to wake up to problems when they start hurting and you know we're all built like that it's, it's kind of how our psychology works so it's not too surprising that uh, that's how we tend to deal with health and doing things prophylactically that we know are good for ourselves. We have this remarkable ability just not to do them. So I think we will always need a healthcare system that is responding to sickness, even, even in many cases where we could have done it. We know we could have done a lot about them beforehand. But I, you know, I, I think that's being a little bit unfair on public health authorities who clearly do a lot of work on um, pub, uh, what, what in general would raise the healthiness of populations. I don't, I don't think that area is ignored. Of course, a lot more could be done. And there's another issue in the background here as well, which I think Mark referred to, which kind of comes down to nutrition. And you know, one of the problems that, one of the reasons why um, pharmaceutical companies and, and so on, or, or industry in general, hasn't really got involved in nutrition is it's just too difficult. You think about, it's very easy to make, make assertions in nutrition. It's unbelievably difficult to make proven facts. You know, running studies on nutritional uh, benefits or disbenefits is ex would be extraordinarily expensive to do and, and there is no agency out there that's got the wherewithal to really do that so you could say well is that because we just don't recognize the value of it i'm not sure I and mean, it's definitely worth thinking more about and it'd be interesting to get mark's view on that but you know those kind of in-depth real sort of proof of principle kind of studies just tend not to happen yeah um, good yeah, to, I mean, yeah good to hear you on that just just before we move on yeah uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not disagreeing at all, actually. Um, and, but uh, I think that actually when it comes to nutrition, there are some very, very simple things that we all know that are proven, which is, you know, basically um, 
eat mostly plants and eat a lot of them and make them diverse. And that's, that's proven time. There's lots of science in on that. Um, uh, and, but I think we're kind of talking here sort of uh, really about that great quote by Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry said, um, people are fed up with a food system that knows nothing about health and a health system that knows nothing about food. And that's, and, and, and it, it, uh, Paul's absolutely uh, right about public health bodies really trying to help us to solve that problem. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who don't want us to solve that problem. The people who want to sell us, you know, unhealthy foods and whatever and push it at us. Yeah, yeah. And then it comes to that problem, of pausing there, well, then do you regulate or whatever? So in my work, what I always say is there are two battles to win if you want to make change. The first is changing the way the money thinks, what it chooses to invest in, what it, what it thinks is a moral direction or whatever. And you're seeing that now with you know, ESG and the rise of renewables. And I've been you know, going into investment houses and banging on about that stuff for 15 years. And now all of a sudden I'm being invited and asked to help with strategy, which is great. So that, that battle is sort of being won. Um, but there's also a, a cultural battle as well, which is what people on the street think, because all economics is essentially centered yeah. And so we have to also, and what tends to happen is that people in their own specialism think, I've got this little lever over here. I as a investor think this, so I'm going to invest in that way. And that's my contribution. And you've got, I know, a writer or a playwright over there who thinks I'm going to you know, try and change the way people think about stuff. And what I try and do in my work is link the two. So that I will, for instance, be in an investment house, you know, doing strategy work at quite a high level on, you know, systemic issues. And then I'll go, you know, and write a play or a book or do a podcast with a comedian or something yeah. to try and get that those two things, those two wheels move at the same time. And, uh, and of course, you know, as Paul said, the world is hugely complex. Um, and who knows how, uh, how it's going to play out. I just know which side I'm on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, just, you know, in my own world of financial advice, I think is had some interesting conversations, uh, before about sort of the idea of, you know, looking after health and wealth and, you know, whether it'd be reasonable to go and see someone who's looking after your pension is also, giving you tips on whether you should be doing more weight training. <laughs> but yeah. was, you know, in the context of things like the hundred year life, you know, the book by Andrew Scott mm. uh, as well, so that stuff's really important in terms of, you know, uh, you know, that, that is slightly, there's a, there's a popular uh, bit to that as well as uh, a sort of industry that looks after uh, clients and so on. Now, moving on to COVID though. Um, now, I sort of want to build this discussion and sort of start from uh, the beginning, I suppose, and some of the sort of, headline issues um, a journalist of course gone for that um so the first question i had uh is maybe difficult to answer but there's a lot of people got opinion on it is whether are you whether the uk government has taken the right approach and just so far which country has done best um <laughs> paul, paul do you want to do you want to start yeah, yeah paul do you want to start <laughs> <laughs> Somebody. It's a, it's a hard uh, question, I know. I mean, it's a slightly unfair question, but you know. Well, I mean, no, it's, it's obviously a, it's, a, it's a question that is very much in the public domain at the moment. Sure. And, I mean, somebody, somebody, I was lucky enough to be in a conversation with somebody very wise who's in a public health position, or was in a very senior public health position in Scotland. And uh, he was sort of talking about the different phases that we're going to go through with this pandemic. And he was saying, he was worrying that actually the last phase would be retribution. And, you know, that, that would not, is not really where we want to end up. And of course, it's so tempting when such terrible things are happening mm. to look for people to blame. Mm. And I, I, I also tempted down that road myself and I try and check myself and say, look, you know, this is incredibly difficult for everybody involved. And it looks with hindsight like lots of things were easy. And, you know, yes, um, it turns out that pretty, some pretty senior politicians didn't go to COBRA meetings in February. And you kind of think, well, that's 
really not a great way of handling a, a, a major viral outbreak. And we knew that risk was there. And mm. you know, lots of businesses did stuff in February, but as a na nation, we didn't appear to do much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting, and I, I suppose that in the long run, the answer to that question is going to depend of, to a very great extent on whether we have, whether the endpoint is a vaccine or a cure, or whether those, both of those things are impossible. And because in, in one sense, the, the answer to what we should, how we should handle this crisis depends massively on how much, to what extent we believe one of those two yeah. things is the end point. Yeah. And, and if, if those aren't the end point, of course, we, the way we handle them has to be very different. Mm. Yes. Uh, Mark, well, before I ask another question, Mark, yeah, what was yeah, your... I mean, I'm reminded of the, the great Chinese proverb that I often quote, which is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the next best time is now. And the yeah. problem that we have with the response is that trees that should have been planted 20 years ago in terms of robust healthcare systems, uh, proper public health policy, integrated thinking, listening to pandemic experts have been saying, we are overdue a flow pandemic, saying, as we've heard this week, you know, that actually, you know, if, if at some point this is gonna happen, we probably should have some PPE stocked up and that not happening, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, and, every, and the problem has always been this debate about cost in that, well, you know, if you want a healthcare system that could have handled, you know, a pandemic, then it's just too expensive, isn't it? You can't have just, you know, idle capacity sitting around. But we found out that not having it sitting around has turned out to be a lot more expensive. And so there's this short-termism that happens and it, and it infects everything we do, short-term political cycles, cycles short-term mindsets in lots of investment companies. And there are, of course, many notable exceptions against that. Short-termism, the way we think about, you know, our own lives and what we want and again this is this is a big societal frame problem that we've got and it's it's it, we're always discounting the risk in the future uh, and the insurance industry I mean, I mean will we talked about this a lot how the insurance yeah. industry is so stratospherically costed risk wrong in the in the service of short-term profit for themselves and of course everybody else kind of takes a look at, you know from them well what is the risk of this well you're saying that so i now can afford to do my business in this way whereas if they'd have costed in climate change pandemic response, all that kind of stuff, we would have been in a very different place. So you get to this argument where people say, oh, well, you know, in hindsight, we couldn't, you know, well, actually, it's, if you're going to run the system the way we do it with this, you know, broken social contract, mass inequality, all that kind of stuff, you can't expect that system to be robust when anything out of the ordinary comes when you have just in time kind of mindset where you try and rent out as much, you know, try and squeeze as much efficiency out at the expense of, you know, the people at the bottom. That, that system is never going to be robust. And, and that, that leads, unfortunately, to Paul's point about a much more fertile ground for retribution because underneath yeah. the COVID retribution, there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I'm predicting there's probably going to be an, an extinction rebellion-like movement about the social contract coming up after this. And I think that's probably yeah. what we need. Well, some interesting bits there. And I think just to ask one simple question that touches on some of that is about capacity. So, you know, what is, I guess it is easy to look back and go, oh, why have we got enough ventilators? Where's our PPE? But of course, you know, I mean, if it was something else we're talking about now, building lots, spending lots of valuable public money that could be spent on other urgent things, mm. on stuff that you don't need, <laughs> right that, there and then, is, isn't also, it's not necessarily a good idea, especially if it could go out of date and so on. So there, there is a sort of balance to be struck, is there not, between, making sure you've, you've got, so, you know, you have spare capacity and how far you can go with that. And of course, the longer you go without using that spare capacity, it's inevitably going to be nibbled away. But I'm interested in what 
and and if you, I mean, I suppose that logic, that way of thinking, I'm kind of talking myself into saying, well, yeah, you know, they didn't, governments didn't get it wrong, but clearly some have responded completely differently. It does look like many of those who've, who've been, who are near China and expecting another SARS-like thing have. And on the other hand, you know, so has, uh, you know, a couple of European countries have done very well. Um, and it does, and also when you hear stories about, you know, we ran a, that a, you know, a, a test was run a few years ago and then the advice wasn't followed or the stocks were depleted because of a, possible austerity that does make you think i wondered I mean, if the, they had any extra insight into some of those headlines yeah the, the caveat to that will is we we don't we don't we at this stage we can't say what handling this well really de definitively looks like I mean, right not surprisingly yeah. the the countries in the far east who've had pandemic who've had not pandemics but had epidemics before have experienced with the sars coronavirus uh have have handled this you know on the face of it much better than we have mm. because they knew you know they had experienced and, and in, in some ways should we be surprised by that we didn't have experience of this mm. we're beginners um we just had a change of government um mm. we love to change or you know change everyone who's in charge <laughs> with incredible velocity in this country so you know that we don't necessarily um that, you know, that kind of lived experience doesn't survive very long but in, in the far east of course they 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 knew how to suppress this virus much more effectively than we did and we could maybe we we're going to argue i'm sure later we could have learned from them faster but the problem is and the reason i mentioned about where what are, what's the end point mm. if the end point is not either a vaccine or a cure yeah. as it wasn't with the, with the spanish flu mm. actually it probably doesn't really make it's not going to make it's all going to come out in the wash in the end mm. because the only end point in that case is herd immunity and, yeah. and what we're deciding about is how we get there and having enough capacity to get there and you yeah. know the, the in some senses with this one th positive thing one can say about this horrible disease is that it's nowhere near as deadly as some former historic pandemics mm. that have come along um and so you know poss possibly getting to herd immunity isn't going to be as horrific as it was in some mm. you know some historical moments but looking at the spanish flu is quite instructive mm. and it was actually the second wave of the second wave of the pandemic that was much more deadly than the first yeah, right. uh, and countries that locked down early didn't tended to do worse in the second wave so mm. you know we're not through this yet let's not try and yeah. jump to premature judgments yeah i think that's absolutely right and i mean the the, the spanish flu of 1918 was taking out people in their 30s and 40s and lo lots younger people as well and I was in a conversation the other day saying, so, you know, imagine what our response would be at the moment if we were having to hide, you know, isolate our children in the way we're trying isolating our parents. Yeah. But, and that's a very real possibility. There's, well, no, there's, there's no reason that a, a future pandemic can't do that. So what we'd hope we'd have from this is as it all comes out in the wash, that we are more prepared and we are, you know, putting in place something for that inevitable next pandemic that will happen because i don't know if you've noticed but viruses like to evolve yeah yeah and i, I might just i mean i want to talk about healthcare economics and you're so sexy will <laughs> that's how i that's how I, you know, my wife you know that's, that was the first our first date it was all about healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you know i think i suppose we talked a little about a bit about the state of affairs uh, before the crisis, but I'm interested in basically how the, the the interplay between the two. So what what's what pressure the crisis is putting on the existing state of affairs, and we've started to touch on some. You started to touch on this topic of decisions. You know, why are we locking down? Can we keep locking down? Is that the right approach? What's the you know as you mentioned? Would it, what if we're having to lock down our children as much? Would you know 
there's a cost there's some different decisions going on there but this idea so this idea of health economics and you know really how much it's it's costing us to be in the state the state we're in mm -hmm. um paul i might want to ask you to yeah start. yeah i'm like i i describe healthcare economics as the topic which nobody wants to talk about and and but it's particularly difficult for any politician to talk about it because it sounds so heartless and it's it's the opposite of the kind of empathetic response that we all want to give to this yeah. uh, to what's happening um but you know health in healthcare economics um th there's a concept which is very fundamental which is quality adjusted life years and it's it's right. basically how how do you how much are you willing to spend as a health system on uh, adding a year to somebody's life at, at its crudest form? And, and you adjust that for quality. So clearly, if somebody's unconscious, lying in bed, it's not as valuable as a proper, fully healthy life. And, and interestingly, the, the evolution of that, the answer to that is, is that in, in roughly in 2013, these are figures I've got anecdotally, but you know, the answer to that question was about, about £30,000 is what the healthcare system would spend on adding one of these quality adjusted life years. And that's drifted up since then to about a hundred thousand pounds. And if you do the sums, you know, you could say, well, if you reckon how many people would die from this virus and you do it broadly and you make assumptions about the mortality rate, um, you know, we probably already spent about that much. Mm. And so we're getting into territory where if we, the price of locking down is going to then exceed um, in the number of lives lost from other causes. And so how much do we privilege this particular disease against others? And, and mm. the answer is we will privilege it because we always respond to the here and now above the unknowable in the future. But it's, it's going to become a very pressing question. And, and there are tremendous risks by uh, over, um, over distributing our resources all on this problem because other things are going to come along and hit us which are going to do even more damage. So we, we, yeah. you know, it's the most pressing for our question for our politicians. I don't envy them having to answer it, um, but yeah. they, we have to sort of hope and trust that they're giving a lot of really careful thought to this question. Yeah, oh. I mean, and then I'm sorry, I'm going to get all systems again. But um, that is absolutely right. You know, the cost of what is the cost of adding, you know, extra years of healthy life, and you know, how do we value that? You know, and how, how much we're willing to, to spend on it. If there was a way of doing that much more cheaply, um, then the economics would change. Okay, and, and what we're doing, we're making that cost at the moment a kind of basically on the healthcare model, saying like, okay, on average, how much do we have to spend on cancer care or beds or whatever, blah blah blah, to help people live this extra life. And and, and if you look at the healthcare system, you know, I th it's um, I think something like eighty percent of the money that you is spent on you in healthcare is spent in in, in the last ten years of your life or something. I can't remember, but it's, it, it ramps up massively. Um, Actually, the, the science um, from a healthcare perspective is is in on this as, in, as the cheapest way to uh, extend people's lives and have them have a help, happy and healthy life. And the biggest indicator of whether you live a happy, healthy, and long life is not whether you quit smoking. It's not whether you do exercise. Actually, not even, you know not your diet. Actually, despite all the things I said earlier, it's how socialised you are, how cohesive your community is, how good your close relationships are, but also your relationships with your neighbours and the, the the people in the local shops and whatever. And social cohesion and socialization is the biggest way of giving people long, healthy lives. And even if they have shorter lives, they enjoy those lives more. And there's long, massive longitudinal studies on this that prove this time and time again. Mm. Um, and if you look at social policy in the West, 
for the last sort of 30 years. Social cohesion um, has been the thing that has been considered too expensive. And this individualist kind of like, it's everybody for themselves. We don't have money for short start centers. We're going to, you know, pubs closing down. Uh, everybody kind of being squeezed out of that, that kind of idea that we are all together, kind of a collective human race. And one of the things that might come out of this crisis is the fact that we have realized that we are all kind of in it together. And actually when we, and one of the, I don't know about you, one of the joys I've seen in my neighborhood, and my neighborhood is pretty cohesive already, but the outpouring of kind of collective fellow feeling from people that actually you didn't even know before this crisis is, 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 is a huge benefit and a huge healthcare benefit as well. So again, systems wise, if you want to extend healthy life, you don't necessarily want to be looking at, okay, well, how can we reduce the cost of ventilators or cancer care or whatever? You want to be saying, how can we get more parks, more pubs, more sporting activities that are team sports? How can we uh, remove partisanship and get people to discuss and agree on the things and build things together? How can we build you know, participatory democratic systems? And of course, yeah, yeah. those are questions that the existing <laughs> party political system doesn't really want to talk about. Yeah. Well, I will get onto that in a moment. But, uh, but very, no, very, very interesting. Now, I suppose in the short term, um, there's this question about ending lockdown. Uh, you need an economy to go back to. But while some of that you know, can seem like a, it's a pragmatic argument, it's a political argument as well. Um, but obviously being able to have an economy to pay for the cost that, <laughs> of, of saving lives is what that's all about. So it's a, you know, it all feeds into each other. Um, and I maybe want to talk about that, but I did also want to talk about this uh, thing I mentioned earlier with the rush, rush to try and find a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that's been it's in you know it's, it's constant it's moving markets uh and, and stock prices and things like that uh and it's i'm sure getting people's hopes up and and, and things as well i hear i think talk lay person's view probably is that there will be a vaccine uh it's what they hear a lot on the tv politicians are talking about it um it's, it's all being worked on every every laboratory in the world seems to be working on this how surely you know how how can they fail um i don't know why we're I, bother- think- I don't know why we're bothering given that you know all we need to do is probably yeah. inject ourselves with some bleach according to donald trump <laughs> Very good, indeed. indeed uh, uh yeah so i mean that doesn't help does it but the i guess that that's what i want to ask about is you know, let's, let's just, just talk about vaccines for a moment then, uh, and let's address, address this issue. And I'd like to say just some specifics. Who are the players? So, I'm, you know, in, in sort of businesses, is it, you know, pharma, tech, is it governments, these recent universities? How good are they at this sort of thing uh, at an organizational level, I suppose? And yeah. how, it, what are the chances of success? Uh, I'll start with you. I mean, I, I mean I've, yes, I can pass on a few interesting uh, um, things from some conversations I've listened to and some uh, some experts that who, who I've had very unfortunately yeah. had good access to. Okay. So the starting point really is um, there's two kind of slightly contradictory things to say about this. So the first, I'll, I'll give you the bad news first, if you like, which was listening to uh, a, um, a lecture by um, somebody who'd worked with, with viruses for 40 years. So it kind of, and, and Dealt with vaccine developments and understands what we're dealing with here and um, he, he was the one who really drove this point home to me we should not assume that we will have a vaccine to this and and he's very he can point it out very simply saying well we don't have a vaccine to SARS 
Uh, we don't have a, a license vaccine to MERS. We got some pretty promising candidates, but more importantly, we never had a vaccine to HIV. And there's a there's a pesky little virus which none of us know, but we've all probably had called HRSV, uh, which they've been looking for a vaccine for for 40 years and not found one. So you cannot take it as red that you have you have a virus come along and we can develop a vaccine for it. It's not a it's not a necessary condition, which is why I was really laboring the point earlier. There are two endpoints here and we have to take them both equally seriously. There is an endpoint where there is no vaccine or cure. Mm. And to, to assume that we're going to have one is to take a massive risk in a public from a public policy point of view. Mm. If you read the Scottish government's uh, policy on the lockdown, they, do, they say they don't assume that there will be either. Um, although, you know, you could say, well, yes, but then what is the expectation? And they, they also then don't talk about herd immunity, which is the only alternative. So we are, okay. th those are the two things. Yeah. So that, yeah. on the other hand, and the, the more positive thing to say is that um, the, the, the vaccine development actually has been rather more successful than drug development over the last 20 years. If you look at the success rates, and if you take a, a vaccine that goes into phase one clinical trials, uh, between, again, <clears throat> the dates 2000 and 2015, and according to the paper I was, I've read, the success yeah. rate is something like 31%. Mm -hmm. So actually very good. Um, that this turns into a licensable, provable vaccine. So when we, we should take very seriously those vaccines which have got into clinical trials in humans, because they're all, you know, tangible. Uh, they all have tangible, realistic chances yeah. of success. Right. And then the second thing to say is that, that we are in one of the privileged positions as a country, and having, we, we, in many ways, in many ways, I think we have the most promising vaccine trial going on globally in the Oxford study okay. um, and you could say well th th that's a very happy coincidence and it is a number of coincidences but it does reflect what I was saying earlier how how much we invest in medical science in the UK and what actually incredible expertise we have in it mm. and that so it's no accident that this has come out of a UK university um, that's investment. Uh, that's a investment as a country, public investment, or just yeah, that's public investment. Uh, well, it's a mixture of public and private. It always okay, is. Yeah. But then, if you, you know, when when we go to look at the history of this, you know, you look at the Jenner Institute. Uh, the reason why they haven't actually finished developing the MERS vaccine is because there wasn't any money around to do it. So you know, vaccine right. development in general has been the kind of poor relation in the medical world, and, and we we haven't. Uh, you know, if you talk to a, a virologist who's been involved in vaccine development, they'll say, well, whenever there's a big disease outbreak, governments are very rapid to spend money on the vaccine, and as soon as it goes away or dies down, they stop spending. So the vaccines yeah. don't get finished off. Mm. Wow. Um, and we'll probably may well see that again in this case if 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 the vaccine doesn't arrive before herd immunity arrives then uh, which i hope, of course i hope it will um then we'll, we'll lose interest in the vaccine development but yeah. we should you know that that oxford study has a, a real chance of working it's and i think it having looked at the other programs it's not that it's not the leader that it, possibly there's a study there's a study in china which is ahead of it but the problem with the chinese study is that they haven't published the phase one data and so we can't we just can't get much insight into it Mm. Right. Fascinating. I mean, this wow. is a, there's, a, there's a wider, you know, Paul's hinting at a wider thing there about, you know, where, where the money goes is, you know, where the drugs and the vaccines get made. And so you look at, um, you know, 40, I think, drugs on the market now for obesity and hair loss, you know. But if you want to look at tuberculosis or any number of neglected tropical diseases which affect billions of people, well, they're diseases of the poor and the poor can't afford the massive drug development costs. So we don't bother. 
And then one of them comes out of nowhere and starts, you know, as soon as it starts communicating itself over to the rich West, and all of a sudden we're, we're worried about this thing now. How could we have not, not paid attention to it? So there are systemically, there are the wrong incentives. You know, just, just yeah. for statistics, the number of diseases we know already exist that, you know, affect humans and kill them at the current rate at which we develop drugs, it would take us 400 years to deal with them all. Right. You know, so, okay. so obviously there has to be some kind of prioritization, of course. And my argument systemically is that perhaps drugs for hair loss and obesity aren't where we should be putting billions of dollars of R&D money. Um, and, and, the, and, and but, the, but I want to talk about a societal vaccine in a way. Yeah. In the, a lot of the problem we have at the moment with these uh, coronaviruses, and the reason it's called a novel coronavirus is because it's leapt from animals to humans. Okay, so we've been aware of these viruses um, in uh, animals and, and the WHO keeps a watching brief on kind of like, oh, is that one going to leap over or whatever? Um, it's our relationship with nature and how we treat nature and how we farm and how we uh, run our markets and how we treat the, the meat and whatever. Um, actually, there's, there's, a, there's a very big argument. So if you want to stop this sort of thing happening again and again, you should be paying a bit more attention to ecology and uh, soil science and agriculture and uh, the way we, we mm. the way we produce our food and store it and ship it and sell it and have a bit more respect for nature yes and i think you know there's a there's a point there in that in terms of you know invest in a you know it'd be great to invest in a lot of healthcare companies when there's you know trying to ta tackle a tackle a virus there's all there's all sorts of issues there once once it's cured <laughs> say it was cured um then obviously that that might drop away we're, as you say we're very uh humans are very sort of short term aren't they and as and mark there's a point you made about there's there's illnesses that kill kill humans that we that we haven't developed drugs for i suppose what you really say is that, you know westerners haven't haven't de developed drugs for because yeah. it doesn't affect westerners yeah, um, i don't know how the wrong. system could be made to attract westerners money to fund those things or you or you, or you, or you change the system so my favorite example I wrote about in my last book was the open source drug discovery, you know, project, right. uh, which you know, has, has some very valid criticisms about it, but they were able to find, you know, f I think four existing drugs that could uh, help treat um, drug resistant tuberculosis you know, in a very short period of time um, by creating a, a, basically a simulation of tuberculosis, which everybody said was impossible, but that's, they, they crowdsourced students read 50,000 scientific papers, extract all that data in a computable format, put it into, uh, and it was all checked five times over. So arguably better than the peer review process in sort of, you know, traditional um, science. And, uh, and, and they, it cost them $15 million to come up with those four new potential drug treatments um, using existing drugs. And they gave away all the IP for free. So there are other models and now they're looking at it and, and that project, which is run by Samir uh, Brahmachari and uh, are looking at, ways to uh, attack things like malaria using these different models. But of course, the model where it says we crowdsource uh, a, a loads of the research and we give away all the IP and uh, you know, that doesn't sit well in, for, in an investment space. Is it, well, how, how are you gonna invest in something where you give away all the IP? And one of the inefficiencies mm -hmm. in, the, in, in, in the drug development system is you may have several competing organizations making the same mistakes time and time again. And part of the reason that drug development is expensive is because four companies are looking for a, you know, a drug for this particular thing. They all making the same mistakes in isolation and not sharing their data. And so there's a massive inefficiency and friction in the whole system because people are trying to protect their patents, their profits, and, uh, and, and sometimes in scientific circles, their reputation or their, or their kudos. And again, that's, you could argue some of that's human nature, but yeah. systemically, you know, what, 
what is the point of a healthcare company or a drugs company? Is it to save lives or is it to make money? And well, it seems to me it's to make money first by saving lives. And, and we need to, and that this is a debate we need to have. And it's because it's a constant debate we're going to have, you know, for as long as human beings are alive. But hopefully it might get steered a little bit further. I mean, I, I, I advise Medicine Sans Frontier and, you know, they've yes. got, the, the, they've got a, a very strong view you know, that the, the current drug development system is massively dysfunctional because it prioritizes profit over, over human life. And it prioritizes the, the lives of the rich over the lives of the poor. And there are other ways of doing drug development that are massively cheap, but they, they, meet, they, they necessarily insist on bringing down a lot of those walls, which are there to design to protect people's reputations, profits, shareholder value, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question is, is the whole pharmaceutical drug development system fit for purpose? And the answer clearly is no, if you look at it from one angle, which is I'll be trying to save the maximum number of human lives for the cheapest cost. Because if, if, if that was the purpose of the system, then we'd have a, a whole different funding model and we'd have a lot more transparency and collaboration. And we don't. Well, Paul, I, do, I would like you to respond to that, Paul. And also reminded that earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you know, there'd been an improvement uh, in, in some of these metrics since 2015, certainly on a, on a seemingly on a productivity point of view, but um, in terms of, you know, yes, I've, you know, businesses have to make money. They are interested in making money is aligned for the customer interest in, in in their delivering that project. In this case, we're the customers, and we want healthcare and we want drugs. But obviously, you know, if it if that's not functional, it's not just about saying they should be making less money it's about long-term viability and, and you know of those businesses and of that as a, as a sector uh or whether it could just be you know could, could be better uh, or could be disrupted somehow um so i'm interested to hear what you say say to those those points that mark raised there well i mean you know i think the, the points mark is raising are um <clears throat> really acute and you know, if i was working if I was one of those amazing people who worked for Médecins Sans Frontières, I think I would feel exactly the same way that they do. And I can totally sympathise with why they would feel like that. I mean, I, I suppose I, 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 I don't personally like the, the narrative where we can always create a narrative to say the world is broken and we need to sort of destroy everything to sort of reinvent it. To, you know, destruction doesn't make things better generally. So it's always a case of, you know, how can we re-engineer things to improve them and so you know if you look at in in, in, in global health you know, the contribution of the bill and, bill and melinda gates foundation for example has been enormous and they, they've been very quick to say well okay there are some achievable goals here they require a lot of money we're just going to provide that money because investment will never provide it so you know the way our system within developed economy works is is profit based that's how the private sector works um we have a third third sector which is not for profit which is makes very very important valuable contributions and you know those kind of crowdsourced projects are also amazing um, but there are things that the private sector can do that will, will never be done any other way and there's things that the third, third sector needs would needs to do to step up you know but at, at its most acute the, the problem is that you know if you're we're talking about spending a hundred thousand pounds to add one year's life to somebody in a developed market because actually politically it's very difficult not to do anything other than that. In India, the annual spend per population is a, between five and ten dollars on in entirety on in healthcare. Wow. That's barely enough to do even a TB test, let alone provide a treatment. So you know how mm -hmm. do we how do we bridge those gulfs? They're they're so wide. Um, 
having having said that, you know, when you look at actually the development, if you do, if we stand back and look at the development over time since over the last seventy years since the World War uh, World War Two, you know, we have seen rising levels of global prosperity and falling levels of global poverty but we certainly haven't eradicated them and, and the, you know, these things remain yeah. huge problems and, and and the point mark's making about the retreat of democracy this is something much newer and something we should we need to be very concerned about and you know and, and of course the, the most stupid and destructive thing that we collectively do from time to time as humans is have wars and, you know, there's nothing worse for global health you know all these conversations go out the window if we end up down, when, we, when we end up down that kind of road, which is where I come back to the earlier point about retribution, you know, that feeling of retribution yeah. is what yeah. raises the possibility of conflict and, and the direction of travel, the, the aims and objectives of organisations like Medicines on Frontier and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, those are peacetime projects and um, yeah. they, they, they're promoting peace and that, that, has, that has to be a, a goal we can all share. I want to, and I want to come to the politics of it at the at the end in just a moment. Um, I guess one uh, question I had uh, was, what? I mean, were there any? Just just while we're on this on, on the tone this tone of conversation, are there any sort of companies in particular, Paul, who are doing a good you know a good job or a laudable job? Obviously, there are some that are. Uh, making a lot of money and uh, it may be the same companies but are there any in particular that you feel are getting the balance right or, or have sort of progressive uh, ethos I suppose? Well I, I, I think you know most most healthcare companies to talk specific companies these are just the ones we come across and know sure, I, I, sure, think, yeah. I think collectively they're all engaging with this really yeah. positively and, and making yeah. a, actually planning to make a real contribution so the bigger end of the companies we deal with we have an investment in Oxford Biomedica okay. and it's an Oxford based company and just by chance they've made a massive investment in a new manufacturing biological manufacturing facility which is perfect for the vaccine that's being developed by the Jenner Institute so they've tied up and they've offered to be one of the manufacturers if the um, if the vaccine is successful and as have more recently AstraZeneca has also done the same thing um, and you know that that's that's one angle. Um, there are a number of companies that are quoted in London, which are um, contributing, making tests. The most, the most best known, not a company I know terribly well, but Novasite, who've actually made a test, had it approved, and their sales have gone from sort of naught to ninety million pounds in a very short space. But you know, mm. we all know that testing is right at the forefront of what we need to do early on. So that's a very valuable contribution. I mean, at the more uh, mundane end, we've got two investments in our Venture Capital Trust who are both um, specialised in disinfection. Yeah. And, had, and actually the appreciation of the value of really good disinfection technology is now much more acute than it was. One's called Tristel, uh, which sells um, very, well, you know, very, very strong high-level disinfectants into hospitals. And the other's called Biotrol, which makes more of a consumer product, but importantly has a technology which means that when you apply the disinfection, it continues to operate for six to 24 hours. And there's no other disinfection I've heard of that does that. So those kind of technologies are very important in a, in a you know, more, in a simpler, easier to understand kind of way. Yeah. And at yeah. the more abstruse end, you know, we have a company, investment in a company called Fusion Antibodies, uh, which is based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. It's a global leader in the development of humanizing antibodies and the whole technology involved in taking antibodies and making them fit uh, to put into humans 
and they've set themselves as a research goal to prove their abilities, if you like, by rapidly uh, developing an antibody that would cure COVID-19. And so, you know, that's that's a pretty ambitious. Yeah. Um, it's the only company I've come across that's actually trying to develop a cure. I'm sure there's hundreds of others. Mm. Um, but actually, you know, they, they've got credible expertise in being able to do that. So it's a really worthwhile project. And there's an interesting sort of a more, uh, you know, whether, you know, there's obviously there's the specifics of this disease, but as, you know, Mark pointed out and yourself pointed out, there'll be there'll be another one. I think what one of the things is that we're aware that we've probably there's a, we've missed the boat a little bit in preventing this, but the, the big opportunity, the tree that we planted is is um, how we deal with the next the next thing that comes, the next big thing. And I wonder if it, it's, it's general things like a more a more hygienic, disinfected world. Uh, perhaps, although I don't know if that has an horrible knock-on effects oh, no. of things like bacteria, <laughs> yeah. you know, bacterial bad. resistance and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that'd be the worst thing, perhaps. Yeah, mm. actually, yeah. But, but a, a word on bacteria and bacterial resistance, actually, because before that, that's to sort of talk to me about healthcare. That's the thing that would keep me up at night uh, was, um, you know, the antibiotic um, mm. resistance being uh, depleted. Um, possibly just a, a word on that, maybe, uh, and where we need to go with that. Well, I mean, it's it's part of the same problem in that, you know, there's been a sort of almost a discovery void in antibiotics because they're not very sexy. They don't make as much money as other drugs, you know, um, but the cost is enormous. Um, the systemic problems that we've been, we've been overusing them and obviously, you know, they get evolved around very, very quickly. Um, so... It, that's it, it's an it's another it's it's like a, a I guess a I don't know if you agree Paul but it's kind of like a parallel crisis to the one we've been talking about really which is you know we know this stuff but the incentives um, in the development of drugs system as it is at the moment are not sufficient and the amount of collaboration is not sufficient that we have enough stuff backed up to deal with that problem. And there are some great examples and there's some stuff you know, around Oxford, for instance, where they're looking into this stuff, but, but it's, it's very small beer compared to developing drugs for hair loss. Yeah, and, and of course the, the difficulty with antibiotics is because antibiotics are all off patent and they're very cheap drugs. And so if you're gonna spend a billion dollars making a competitor to a very cheap drug, you know you're never gonna get really paid back. And so that, that's one of the fundamental problems behind it i mean in addition it's very difficult you know there's it's not if it was easy it would have been done so it's, this is scientifically not a walk in the park to create another antibiotic um I've, there was one aim company that had a very was trying to resurrect a, a, an antibiotic that looked like it worked and um it, it failed its phase three study amazingly it surprised everybody that it did that um so it there and, and i suppose there's another issue here which is to do with how we treat what happens when drugs kind of get to off patent and end of life, they become generic. And actually there, there's been quite a lot of work done on this, but it's, it's, it's not, not a new thing, but you know, those, because those generic drugs sell for very little money, not enough manufacturers make them and then they run out and we have big shortages of some generic drugs in the sort of spiral around. Um, so actually, that, that's a whole area that we just need to take more care of. Mm. And, um, the, 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 and regulators, of course, medical regulators have a huge amount of influence on what gets developed. So they can lower the barriers to drug creation. Of course, what's happening now is the medical regulators are pushing the barriers down lower mm. than they've ever been before in my adult life for a COVID, any kind of COVID-19 treatments. They get rushed through. They get the benefit of the doubt. If it looks like it works, let's take it to the next stage. 
normally it's not like that. Normally, if there's yeah. some tiny crack in your argument, you didn't dot some I and a 3,000 page document, you've got to go and do it all over again. Um, so, and it's the same with antibiotics that in the, in the States, the regulator there has been really trying to lower the barriers to, uh, to, to drug development in that area. Yeah. Um, just coming on to the, sort of the, the last topic I wanted to introduce, um, and I guess, you know, we are, you know, bound to talk about COVID, but it's, um, about the relationship between the economics here and, 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 and politics, I suppose, uh, or, or society. So, um, some of the phrases that we're hearing, get the economy working again, uh, saving lives, flattening the curve, saving the NHS. Uh, I guess what I'm interested in is what does, uh, and I think it's the phrase you used in our pre-discussion, Paul, um, uh, what, is the, what does acting responsibly mean in this context where there are so many priorities and, and strong voices calling for different courses of action um, and I suppose you know in the context of the the economics that we we're talking about earlier. For me there's two ways of answering that from from a point of view of public policy I think acting responsibly means over communicating and publishing as much information as possible. You, you, the, 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 if, if the public has a, any kind of feeling that something's being hidden it undermines trust and, and you know trust is of absolutely the essence you know, mm. between politicians at the moment and and the public and the way they respond to this crisis so over publishing um being willing to say well we're thinking this because of these things not using phrase there's two kind of phrases i don't like and in westminster they use this phrase we're following the science i don't don't think they should say that there is no such okay. thing called the science which you can follow you know you're, you're mm. following you, the, the body of scientific advisors that you chose to follow as, as the leader of the country or the leaders of the country you select your your experts and you follow their advice but that doesn't represent the science the science is a myriad of conflicting voices and it's 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 a dangerous oversimplification to say that and it's also a sidestepping of responsibility as if to say i'm not really responsible for this decision i was only following the science Mm. you are responsible you chose your advisors you took their advice that's now your responsibility you've got to live with it and on the other hand if the scottish government um, um have a, a sort of similar tendency they don't talk so much about the science and they're actually i think in some ways better at publishing data we can see the management um the management data for the nhs in scotland and we can see exactly how many people are in icu and lots of statistics that you can't get for england um, but then when they published their paper on the next thing, the lockdown, they said, um, what we're doing is ethically the right thing to do. Now, to me, that's a kind of quite a, it's almost a kind of yeah. bullying kind of comment that don't question us, we're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. be willing yeah. to have, let people know that, that you don't have just the right answer all the time. There's these, ethically, these questions are profoundly difficult. And that thing we were talking about healthcare economics earlier on, you know, at some point they're going to have to talk about it. And, and it's a difficult thing for them to talk about. And the, the other phrase that they're going to have to kind of decriminalise is herd immunity. I'm slightly anxious now by how much vilification the concept of herd immunity now has because the government sort of used that phrase too early on when we just didn't know enough. And right. It wasn't, you know, I don't think anybody thinks herd immunity was the right thing to go for straight away. We weren't ready for the, we had to pause and locking down to, build all sorts of capacity and so on but herd immunity may be the only way out of this we just too early to tell 
So we've got to make sure that that isn't regarded with complete contempt by everybody in, in the population. Mm. I mean, I think there's a, an, an even wider point here, which is, so if you, we talked earlier about, you know, some European countries appear to have dealt with the first wave much better. Um, and the, the obvious one is Germany. And, you know, one theory as to why that is, is because their head of state is a scientist. So she yeah. has that and she understands the uncertainties and she knows there is no such thing as the science. And, you know, she probably chose her scientific advisors from the basis of being an actual scientist. Now, if you look at the political class in this country, there is probably less than five people in the Houses of Parliament that have any kind of robust scientific training or understand, you know, understanding the basics that, you know, anybody coming out of medical school or have done a science degree would. So we have a... We have a whole bunch of people that kind of might understand economics or they might understand classics or they might understand, uh, you know, media or whatever. But, you know, when you're running a country, as we're finding out now, it's quite useful to have people in there who understand how science works, the uncertainties that come with it and how to make balanced decisions of the sort that Paul's talking. And in our political class, whether it's left or right, there is absolute paucity of people who understands it. And that also talks to our absolutely shocking response to climate change as well. And ours is better than most, actually, I have to say. Um, and, you know, what should be coming out of this is, you know, you think coronavirus is bad, you wait for climate change, because this is just a walk in the park. So we, I, you know, the, 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 the good response is to demand more of our policies. But, but the problem with science as a concept is that it, it's not trusted yeah. culturally at the moment. And there's also, I'm not going to talk about this for, for absolutely yeah. hours, but the eye, you know, um, to be considered educated, for instance, in the elite now, you can quote Shakespeare, but you, but you don't know what the second law of thermodynamics is. Now, the second law of thermodynamics is basically the fundamental law of the universe. But if you, just, if you raise that at a dinner party, because there's some kind of geeky idiot who shouldn't be allowed into polite company, which is ridiculous because it's, it's, the, it's pretty much the rule of, of, of all our lives. So we have to, and you know, that whole kind of, the, and Michael Gover reminded of his, you know, and he was taken out of context when he said, you know, the, the, the country's fed up with experts. I think we've just yes. realized that the country is now like, going like, yeah, probably some experts would have been really handy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's the preponderance of uh, PPE degrees, politics, uh, uh, yeah. philosophy and economics uh i mean it's still it's still two disciplines more than more than my own my own majors uh but uh, but i'm not running the country uh i don't want to nor do anyone else um i mean if i mean some of what we're talking about you know yes it, it's it's a, you know grumbles well-founded grumbles about about the state of you know our, our, our politicians um but i see you know pop it's not unfair to say that populism has, has sort of crept become part of that in the last few years in this country and others um and I guess I suppose, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously we, we, it's a joke now to say, you know, remember the, remember the good old days when we were arguing about Brexit and they were worried about that, <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and you know, that, 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 that can be seen as a, as a populist cause, whether it's a, I'm not going to get into the rights or, and wrongs of it. Um, but, you know, it was, it was I, I wonder, somehow I felt that with, with COVID-19, with, with a big emergency, it was almost a sort of, disrupting that agenda we're going to have to get serious now it's back back for back in time for serious politics again you can't hide behind uh, bluster bluff and bluster you either deliver or you don't now i think there's, a, there's an element to that um but but uh you can already see 
in, in you can always see some some of the you know resistance even to to some of the good journalism being done out there. Um, the, the, this you know obviously this emotions run high in politics and there's still those agendas carry on. Now again, not getting into the rights and wrongs of that, but interesting what the effect of a a crisis, a pandemic like that, is uh, on 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 a country. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen the risk, uh, you know, a lot of people saying, isn't it great? You know, if you, you wait all these, you know, years, um, I can't, can't get the quote wrong, but it's sort of, you know, you, you dismissing uh, all these years, di dismissing socialism. And then you then you basically become socialist because you have to spend all this money. But these are sort of trite phrases. But this is actually the sort of perhaps a, perhaps we're underplaying the effect this is going to have on on us as a society yes it could make us better i think great you know community we've seen the community come together clap for the nhs um you know uh C captain tom and all, all this stuff uh but uh, i think you know but it's potentially um you know when you make a country poorer and more desperate it doesn't necessarily make it better does it um, you treat people badly uh, in bad conditions; they don't get healthier. I think, mm, yeah. um, and so I just wanted, to, just as the final, fin finish this off. Perhaps before we look at a bit of optimism, what you think, what you think about that situation, what effect it will have, could have on our politics, and what we need mm. to avoid. I suppose. Well, I think this. I mean, you know, thanks for the easy ones, Will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I think you know you, you, you've 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 hit upon the, the 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 very essence of our times with that question, which is where do we go from here? Because you know, um, as Einstein said, if you carry on doing what you're doing, you're going to end up where you're going. You know, and, and thinking that you're going to get something different from doing the same thing is ridiculous. Um, so we have, I think Bill Gates said it recently. He said, you know, pretty much every country has been set an exam called COVID nineteen. Every political system, every healthcare system, every economic system, every system of the, all the differences we've got in the world, you know, whether it's China versus Venezuela versus France versus Germany, you know, versus Sweden, whatever, you've all been set an exam. And it's called COVID-19. And nobody's going to get, nobody's going to get an A grade because as Paul was saying earlier, we don't, we just don't know how it's going to play out. You know, the second, third, fourth order effects is far too complex. And so what you're then going to see is, well, it's the attitude, it's the mindset, it's the culture of the politics and the markets and whatever in those various different countries that will come out saying actually it's the way they think about problems and the way they ask questions and the way they talk and what you know do they fight like friends or do they fight like enemies so you look at america for instance and it's, it's interesting because donald trump cannot insult the virus he's got nothing to say you know <laughs> he, he, he literally you see him going like this just a fuck up because i can't call him you know tiny michael or you know stupid yeah. julie or whatever it's a <clears throat> You know, and, he, and, he, and he's looking around for anybody to blame. It's the WHO this week. It's China's Wuhan Institute of Virology this week. Yeah. You know, it's blah, blah, blah. It's whoever. It's the Democrats. It's never, you know. And, and the world looks at that and goes, that's really bad. Regardless of your politics, just go, yeah. that's an abdication of, in terms of your, you know, of the examiner looking at you from outer space, that's not good. And interestingly, I've got a bit of a back channel to the, the Canadian government and they're thinking this is our moment this is our moment now because we think you know our way in our culture and the way we think about politics and debate whatever could come out of this and they you know if we get this right it could be a bit of a flip in yeah. that when we think of North America we don't think of the United States anymore we think of Canada 
as the you know the cultural powerhouse yeah. on, on that part of the continent. I so um, so you know who knows how it's going to play, and I and I you'd be mad to predict it. And I think we're in one of those inflection points. And as Paul was saying, you know, we will find, just as with herd immunity, we will find out in 10 or 15 years how this played out. One option is people get more insular because, you know, the populists kind of find something to blame and people find that easy. And because they're poorer and because the, the economy's you know, in the toilet, then they do that. Or there's, there's a perfectly a reasonable other option, which is the stuff you've been seeing on the streets, the clapping for the NHS, the community groups coming together and people going, you know, I'm done with all that divisive politics. I just learned that my neighbours are the same as me because the virus told us we were all the same and we are all the same to the virus. And I don't know how it's going to play out. I just know which one I prefer the sound of. And I know which one I'm, I'm going to dedicate my efforts towards trying to create. But who knows? Yeah. But Paul, how would you, how would you characterise, characterise the sort of risk, opportunity? I think in, the, in this kind of discussion, um, somebody's already pointed this out you know that there's there's a danger that we all assume that the things we thought before the pandemic are now even more true and are likely to happen next um and so that's a caveat to what i'm about to say and, and, and that might characterize some of the discussion yeah. i mean what, what i think let's start with what's not going to change after the virus I, I, what i can absolutely guarantee will not change after the virus is human nature you know we are pretty flawed creatures we've got some amazing aspects and we've got some horrible aspects and they're both still going to be there afterwards and so you know that and the reason i'm saying that is because we need to have realistic expectations of how the world's going to evolve but i think what we're talking about at amati uh, is mm. how some of the trends that were happening before this uh, what we call secular trends things that are going on over quite long periods have been accelerated very dramatically by the virus and uh, by the pandemic and uh, you know we will, and some of those are very obvious, like the trend towards online shopping, and and the, the you know Amazon's dominance of um, the global consumer space has now just let, taken a leap. Um, you know, it's something like 16% of global consumer spending will now go through Amazon. Um, well, that was a trend that was there already, yeah. but it's just kind of it's just taken this mega leap. Of, you know, the, the importance of broadband and the kind of zoom not, i don't want to praise zoom too much video conferencing uh, there are many ways of doing it um thankfully uh, that you know we've got used to new things that we we're going to get used to at some point anyway it's just now it's in your face so solve the problems work out the passwords work out the technology you know and get on and do it and then it becomes part of your life so and, and i think you can take that more widely into the political area so relating this back to some of the things we've been saying you know it's very clear that if you look at the um um, the, the countries around the world that are not free, their rulers have used the opportunity to grab a load more power and they're not going to let go of it after mm. this. You know, this is a one-off. It was a trend already in place and it's just accelerated. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of a website called Freedom House, which I, I they, they publish very interesting articles. Um, they do proper research on what they're interested in is the level of freedom in the world and how it's changing. And, you know, over time, yeah. it's diminishing and, and they provide lots of evidence and it's not diminishing everywhere. Some countries, it goes back the other way, thankfully. But on balance, there is this trend over the last 10, 12, 13 years to go towards less freedom. And, you know, I think most people in this country, you know, that's one of our top priorities to make sure that doesn't happen here. Um, and we want that, that trend to reverse. Um, and there is a danger coming back to what you were saying, Will, that, that when, when economies go haywire and when, when you get a depression or a recession, 
um, normally the first thing that goes is 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 the politics. You know, you, you go towards the extremes. And so, again, coming back to the point I'm at, I, I made at the beginning about not wanting to see this kind of instinct for retribution, that's part of that gut reaction of people to say, no, I just want, I think they come up with some very simple answer, which is, you know, either to the far right or the far left, depending on what your proclivity is. You know, staying in the middle and staying balanced is a tough place to be, but yeah. it's, um, it's, we just need to keep a level head. To be optimistic, you know, there are, you know, also examples of when things like this happen, things going positively. So if you look at, you know, back into the Second World War, um, where, you know, all sorts of debt and, you know, recession and, you know, death uh, and all that, um, you've got Bretton Woods, you've got the Marshall Plan, you've got uh, a lot of the, it's, you know, the United Nations all, all come, kind of coming out. Oh, sorry, sorry, the United Nations was in 1971. Sorry, don't edit that bit out. I've got my history wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, so there, are, so there is this, this moment now, and it'd be interesting to see if there is the mechanisms by which we can, as a species, kind of go, oh, perhaps we need to reorganize ourselves differently. Maybe the G20 doesn't work anymore. Maybe that was its last whatever. Maybe we need to think differently about the Security Council. Maybe the United Nations needs to change it. That that could happen. And I know there's. I know I'm in. I'm involved with people who you know are actively trying to make that kind of thing happen. Whether it will or not, I don't know. And so we are, I think, actually on this incredible journey at the moment, where the impossible has never been more possible, and the nightmare has never been more present. Yeah. Well. On that bombshell, <laughs> uh, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I've been a fantastic discussion, extremely uh, enlightening. Um, but uh, I think I'm going to have to re-listen to that a couple of times. Uh, to, to yeah, sorry. To all. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, Paul, uh, Mark, thank you very much. <laughs>